0: look with me to the very first words spoken in this gospel. Consider just a short passage to introduce it today as the author himself introduced it, verses 1 through 4 of the gospel of Luke. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of things you have been taught. We ask, O God, as you gave this Word through this servant of yours, you would launch us in understanding it, seeing in familiar passages new things, new truth, establishing us in the strength and certainty that it was written to give for your glory. Amen. If a physician was to tell you at some point that you have a very serious disease, the chances are that one of your first responses would be to think about a second opinion. Not that you would totally disbelieve what you had been told, but you certainly would like to know if it could be confirmed. For if you're going to face something threatening your life and possibly costing many thousands of dollars and giving you much anxiety, you want to make sure. And so, of course, you go to another doctor who might review the tests or make new ones and bring different expertise to bear and say whether he or she sees the thing the same way. And even if that second viewpoint only confirms that, yes, you do have that disease and you are very sick, you probably have gained a little bit just in some confidence of or reassurance of knowing that even in your illness, you're working on the basis of an accurate doubly certified diagnosis. Well, today we're beginning to study this gospel written by Dr. Luke. It's the longest book in the New Testament by volume, not by chapters, but by total number of words. Luke is the most massive book of the New Testament. And in fact, if you add it together with Luke's other major book, the book of Acts, most people don't realize that Luke wrote the largest portion of any one author of the New Testament. You could perhaps try that trivia test on some friend who thinks they know the Bible and say, who wrote more words in the New Testament? And many people will say Paul. And some might think about the gospel of John and the epistles of John and the book of Revelation and say, John, and they're wrong. The answer is Luke the author of more, about 28% actually, of the New Testament from this man's pen. Now, every biblical gospel is entirely unique. Their openings are only one place where you see this, and I just ask you to think for a moment about how the four gospels each opens. John begins in a way before time and space, and John writes that wonderful opening In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Completely unique from the others. Mark, always speaking in short, crisp sentences, gets right to the point and says, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's a man who gets down to business. Matthew was interested in a genealogy and a tie to how Jesus sprang forth from the Israelite nation. And so he writes, his opening line, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David and son of Abraham. But Luke has a completely different beginning than all these others. And the scholars tell us that he's actually following the the example of other Greek authors, secular authors, who very typically in a philosophical or legal discourse would open with a careful purpose statement and certify what it was they were aiming to do. And that's what Luke does as a Greek author here. And we do need to remind you that here we have an author who is a Greek. I'll mention more about that in a moment. But a man who writes, as I would have to say, almost the best writer of the New Testament. I know when I first began to learn Greek many years ago, you would Study The first Greek that you probably read, most people uh, get John because it's pretty basic and and good, but basic Greek. But when you want to really learn the stylized high Greek, you read Luke because this is a man whose Greek is beautiful who writes very well in very fluid statements and sentences. He was a master writer. I think of a comparison maybe to someone like Thomas Jefferson when all of those great founding fathers were putting their heads together and how are we going to found this nation and how are we going to declare our independence? They looked among them and said, we need a writer. And they picked Thomas Jefferson to take his pen and make that first great draft with weighty sentences and flowing words. That would be Luke's role in the midst of early biblical authors. Now, the goal of Luke's gospel was immediately done to ground a friend in deep certainty about who and what Jesus Christ was. And this friend seemed to be in some possible perplexity of of doubt or at least undeveloped faith. And we see this as a gospel that can serve as an antidote to doubt. And doubt is something that isn't just for unbelievers. And as a matter of fact, it's for those who have begun to believe but are trying to sort things out and trying to put things in place. And doubt can gnaw away at believers at almost any stage of their faith development. It's naive if we don't admit this. You may be one of the longest-standing Christians of 50, 60 years or more. And there certainly are times when the thought comes over you or Satan sort of tempts you and you think to yourself, now, do I really believe that the life of a Galilean peasant 2,000 years ago was the life and vessel of the incarnation of God on this earth? How could that happen? It it seems so fantastic if I stand back from it. And people think to themselves, well, I've heard many well-educated people make fun of it or say only fools or morons believe things like that. And and they they make fun of it. they, They cut it down. Could it really be wrong? And if it's wrong, is there some way my sins can be forgiven? If it's wrong... Is there some way I'm going to have an eternal life after this life? If it's wrong, is there anybody listening to my prayers? Christian, please don't tell me you've never doubted, because if you're that person, you're not in my company. We all doubt. We have real doubts sometimes about Jesus Christ, and we struggle, even perhaps if we know the right answers for our assurance. There are times when our hearts betray us. Well, this gospel of Luke, I hope, will serve to reestablish and rebuild for you the certitude of faith in Christ. In fact, I like to call this the gospel of knowing for sure. I like to think of it as a physician of souls sitting down, giving a great second opinion to certify what it is really wrong with us and what's really right with Jesus Christ that can give us a whole new life in Him. Now, first of all today, most of what I'm doing is introduction here I said to my wife, the first sermon of a new book is always a little frustrating because you have to introduce the book, and maybe you can't grapple with applications as much as you want to, but I hope there's something that will help you and establish you even as I do this application this morning. I need to mention first the key people involved in the origin of Luke's gospel, and the first of those people is Luke himself. Now, interestingly, his name does not appear on the gospel. You have an English translation Bible in front of you and you see Luke printed in big bold words at the top, but that's not in the original language version of this. In fact, this, like many other biblical books, nowhere does the author put his own name in and attribute it to himself. There was a sort of a modesty principle that applied in those times. Same principle that John used when he would speak a little bit about himself because he was in the action, but he didn't want to name himself, and so he said, that disciple whom Jesus loved. He was talking about himself. We have the same thing here. Luke doesn't say, I, Luke, write this gospel, but that is an undisputed fact. This is not a book of the Bible where there are any critics really lining up to say somebody else did it. There are those books where people falsely claim those things, but not with this one. Now, we know that Luke was not Jewish. He was not one of the original 12 who traveled around with Jesus. He, in a sense, was a second-generation Christian and a Gentile Christian at that. He's the only Gentile gospel author. Matthew and Mark and John all were uh, Jewish believers. Matthew and John, of course, being original 12 disciples, and Mark being close to that circle. So here was a man who we, about whom we have no real certainty that he ever even physically laid eyes on Jesus. That's important to say. Their lives overlapped, and yet we don't know that Luke was necessarily around Jerusalem when Jesus was living. And there's every good chance that he never did actually see Jesus. He doesn't claim that he did. He wrote this gospel in the time period of about 62 or 63 A.D., quite close to the death of Paul in Rome, and he may have even been working on it while Paul was imprisoned in Rome before his death. Luke was a Greek, trained as a physician. They really had physicians then, and they were among the best doctors you could find in the world in that time. Interestingly enough, there was a fairly famous medical school in a city of Tarsus, the city where Saul, or Paul, was born had a medical school. Did Luke go there? We don't know for sure. We don't have any way of affirming that, but it's an interesting speculation because those two became great friends and companions. That may have been how they met. Paul talks about Luke many times. A typical mention is in Colossians four fourteen, where he refers to him as the beloved physician. He's with Paul. All along the way, through many, many travels, they were seldom separated in the missionary travels. He went through prison. Whether he was a prisoner himself is doubtful because he wasn't accused of the things Paul was, but he was nearby. Maybe he was the one that even brought Paul the supplies and the basic necessities of life as a visitor in prison. He went through shipwreck. He writes the book of Acts, and and there are what the scholars call the we passages of Acts where Luke says, we did this because he was there, and he was writing about joint action that he was involved in. So we know that this man had years of close access to Paul, certainly, as well as to many other apostolic people and eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. He had tremendous sources at his fingertips. He could talk to the people involved with Christ in that first generation. Just as an aside, it's it's almost obvious in the first chapter in the account of the birth of Christ that Luke had, had almost certainly interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. He spoke to her. What happened to you? How did you learn about this? He investigated. And Mary had to have told him what she experienced. Now, in verse 3, we learn of the other important personality in this origin of this gospel, and he's more of a mystery person. He's called Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus. That's a, a title of honor for someone who probably held a position in the state. Remember, Luke was involved in Rome. He was quite possibly in Rome when he was writing this gospel. He knew people in the, even the household of Caesar as there were Christians moving about in Rome and developing, responding to the gospel. It's highly likely that he was writing to a Roman official who had some interest in the gospel of Christ. Perhaps Theophilus had already professed that faith. He'd already said, I'm a believer Or maybe he was sitting more on the edge of his chair as what we call a God seeker and saying, I'm really interested in these things. I want to know. I want to understand this. It's, It's mysterious to me. Help me know more about this Jesus that you call the Christ. There are those who actually would say, because of the meaning of his name, that Theophilus was not necessarily a flesh and blood person. His name means lover of God or beloved of God. And so people say well we think this is just sort of a name of of a fictional person and luke was saying i'm addressing this gospel to all those who are lovers of god i tend to side with those who want to have their cake and eat it too on this one i think it seems very likely that theophilus was a real man but that luke was listing his name and being very aware of the what we call a double entendre the double meaning that in addressing his friend, he was also addressing everyone who loved God and sought more knowledge of him. Well, as we discover, we're going to find out that Luke is a, a gospel writer who loves people as God loves people. I, I see Luke as, a, as the guy who liked to sit on the bench at Park City and watch the people go by and marvel at the variety at all the different people and try to read their lives and their faces and their their mannerisms and their situations. He noticed people like no other gospel writer. He notices and brings to our attention crooked tax collectors and beggars and uh, the seriously ill and a runaway son and his anxious father. This is the gospel of the prodigal son, of course. Many such people, women are noticed and highlighted in Luke in a way that are not quite the same in the other Gospels, where in the Jewish culture, the woman tended to be more in the background, not brought forward so much. Luke sees many women with unique involvements and interest in Christ and points them out. Here's this doctor with his gifts of discernment and observation, seeing how people are interacting with Christ and coming to new life. Now, secondly, having spoken about some of the people in, in the gospel, let's talk about the subject of this gospel. And this is interesting to me when we say, what is the subject? It's not a thing. It's a person. And it's quite obvious the person is Jesus. And yet, in a way, it's not so obvious because in the four verses I read to you, the name of Jesus doesn't appear, does it? Nor does the word Christ I could have a contest and say, let's have silence until someone raises their hand and tells me which is the first verse in chapter 1 of Luke that mentions Jesus or Christ. I won't take the time that it would take. It's verse 31. There the name Jesus appears for the first time. What at first Luke says his subject is, is this, things that have been fulfilled among us. Now, he says that in a let-the-reader-understand manner. You know, O Theophilus, what I'm writing about. These wonderful events that have been fulfilled that, of course, center on Christ. That's what I'm going to write to you about. I'm going to write to you about Christ Jesus, who's a greater physician than I am, who went into the human condition and healed Places previously untouched, wounds that went deep into men that couldn't be touched with any medical school's teachings about bandages or surgeries or or pills that could be offered. I'm going to tell you about the divine healer who came in the theme of Luke to seek and save the lost. Luke's gospel doesn't have the same kind of fulfillment emphasis about the Old Testament as Matthew did. We studied Matthew in great detail, if you're new here, Uh, just a couple of years ago, went through the entire gospel rather exhaustively, and and Matthew, uh, we constantly hear saying, this happened so that the Scripture which says this could be fulfilled. He was a Jewish writer. He had an Old Testament mindset. He wanted to show that relationship that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Luke isn't going to point that out in the same uh, one-to-one way as Matthew did, but here we see from the outset he is saying that his subject is a fulfillment in our midst of great things expected from the past or from of old. He's not talking about a myth. He's not talking about theology. He's not really even talking about religion. He's talking about events and people and the particular person of Jesus Christ about whom the whole Mediterranean world was still buzzing 30 years after his death. That's important to remember. This isn't one or two or three years after Jesus died. This is about 30 years almost exactly close to a generation. And Luke says, I'm going to tell you about that most important person. And we need to get this knowledge set and firm and clear. You know, we're becoming increasingly aware that the World War II generation are lesser and lesser in number among us. And those who fought for this country in Europe and in the Pacific, many of them ordinary people doing very heroic things. What... uh, Tom Brokaw called the, the great generation, I believe, are passing on from us, and we need to get their stories. When I was growing up in the 50s, you know, World War II was, was just over, a decade, but it, as a little kid to me, it seemed like that's way long ago. Nobody talked about it anymore. I was over and done with. And now, isn't it interesting, a whole generation later, we're saying, wow, that was a great event. That was an important cataclysmic thing. We need to understand it. We need to hear what the people who went through that understood and could tell us. Well, that's exactly the situation that Luke is pointing to here. He's saying, look, it's 30 years now that Jesus has died on his cross and, and rose again, and people like a Roman noble... Theophilus are talking about it and wanting to learn about it. It's time that we got in touch with what the first-generation disciples can tell us and get it down and get it sure so that this generation can learn it and generations to come as well. Mark had probably written his written record by this time. Notice that Luke tells us his very first words are that many have undertaken to draw up these accounts. It's almost certain he had Mark in mind there. We have to believe Luke saw the gospel of Mark before he wrote. The parallels between writing and a sense of dependency there is, is a sure thing, and that doesn't in any way damage what God was doing in Scripture to say that one gospel author was aware of the other gospel author. Mark did write first, as far as we can tell. Peter told what he knew to Mark, and Mark was close to those events Many speculate, actually, here again, Mark spoke about himself when he spoke about that young man who ran away and left his cloak behind. Many think that was Mark in his gospel. Luke knew, though, that there was a new audience that hadn't read Mark. They weren't Jewish. They weren't necessarily going to read a book by an Israelite. They were Gentiles. They wanted a book written in their terminology by one of their people. So here was a whole new audience as Gentiles were coming to Christ, and Luke said, I have attempted to be in touch with these sources, to listen to them who were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, and now, having investigated, to write it down in an orderly account. The subject of Luke's gospel, though, the premier subject is Jesus, Son of God incarnate in flesh, living among us, doing these great things in real history. And some would say Luke comes off as not only a doctor but more of an investigative reporter, saying, I have exhausted this story. Now let me tell it to you. Thirdly, then we realize the purpose of Luke's gospel, and verse 4 tells it here. It is that we may know the certainty of the things taught about Christ. I find a, one of the great, it's a tiring thing that I do, but it's also a great thing. We finished this morning the last class of a new members class, and we'll interview these folks for, at lunch today. And, you know, the new members process is always exciting and tiring for me because, as many of you know, I try to meet with each of the new members and hear their testimony and hear their life story, and that, that is exciting. I've been able to do that for over a 1,000 people since being your pastor. And it doesn't make me an expert in testimonies, but it does mean I've heard a lot of them. And and I'm able to see some of the patterns that emerge. And quite often I hear a testimony that, that comes from somebody who became a believer when they were a child or adolescent, and they'll tell me the story almost with a chuckle, and they'll say, yeah, pastor, when I was six, I prayed the sinner's prayer. My mother taught me to accept Christ as my Lord. And then I prayed the prayer again, and then I prayed the prayer again, and then I prayed the prayer again, because I wasn't sure that it took the first 22 times that I prayed the prayer. And, you know, I smile when I hear that, because that's a little parallel to my own experience, and I know that isn't a problem of whether God saves or not. It's a problem of the subject of assurance. And assurance isn't something that every believer receives immediately upon professing faith in Christ. In fact, there are true Christians who never become well-established. They never can seem to grasp, whether through self-doubt or some issue with themselves, that God has his fatherly grip firmly upon them, and they can be sure that they belong to him. Luke's friend Theophilus, if he was a believer, had this problem. We don't know. As I said, he may not have yet been a believer, but he wanted to become sure. And there are many people like him in the world today. I'm sure there are people like this here now. You know the basic gospel. Maybe you've even professed it. But you say, boy, I just don't know what it would feel like to be sure about that. Well, physicians were people in that day and today who are taught to observe the human body and its functions and its signs and to draw conclusions from the facts that they observed. So Luke does that as he comes to the gospel. He isn't a sloganeer here, he isn't a politician, he's not a dreamer, he's not a mystic, he's a scientist. And as a scientist, he comes and says, I have investigated, as I would do with a patient whose symptoms I was carefully examining and trying to understand, what is this person's need? Now, you need to think of that when you realize what the very first subject is going to be in just a week or so after we deal with John the Baptist. We're going to see this scientist straightforwardly and plainly talking to us about a woman who he believes her testimony pledged to be married to a man named Joseph who had never had intimate relations with a man who brought a child into the world. The scientist is telling us this. And you need to understand that. Unless you think that Luke is some kind of an ignorant yokel or medical science was really backward and doctors didn't even know where babies came from, Here was a man who had delivered children who knew much about them. And he said, look at the wonder. God brought a child by his Holy Spirit into this world. Here's a man who I'm sure had, if they had death certificates in those days where a a medical doctor had to examine a body and say, all right, he's really dead. You can bury him now. Luke had done that. He knew when a body was dead. He knew what the evidences of of death were. And here's a man that by the end of his gospel is going to tell us the cold corpse of Jesus revivified, walked about, and interacted on the earth with the people who loved him. Jesus rose. This scientist and journalist is going into questions of the who and what and when and where and how of Jesus and answering them. And it's very clear that he's not a man who thought that history was just, you know, as some scientists, amazingly. You know, there are scientists who will de- deny that they tell us what the scientific method is, you know, and it's a matter of observing and, and writing down facts and then seeing how nature behaves, but then they believe the origin of it all is is something absurd. It just happened or that it's always been. That wasn't Luke. Luke was a scientist who glimpsed the sovereign God fulfilling a divine plan in a meaningful way in history and in the factual truths of Jesus Christ. Now, having read only the preface, the first four verses, you could say, well, you haven't given me much to introduce Christ yet, and I'll say, stay tuned, and we'll try to do that. But let me just draw a couple vital conclusions that we could say so far from this introductory lesson, and I'll be quick. Luke's preface opens a window to show us the process by which God caused Scripture to come into existence. Do you realize that? Here's a man, an author of a scriptural book, telling us what he did and how it took place. And when we think about how God used human authors to give us this inspired book, which is really 66 books gathered into one, we talk about the concurrent operations of the Spirit of God and the talents and writing and wisdom and mind of an individual human being. There's more than just a talented author or a good writer here. There's more than just literature that ranks above Shakespeare or above C.S. Lewis or your favorite writer here. What we have here are things that 2 Peter was talking about. 2 Peter 1.16. Peter, from that first generation of apostles and witnesses, says this. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you of the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on and says, men spoke from God as they were swept along by the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't completely explain the process, but it is telling you a human being took quill pen in hand and wrote, but God was involved. There was a concurrence of the action of God and the talents of an author. God's Spirit mysteriously was communicating in such a way that God's own truth was coming forth. John MacArthur, a fine author today, has said this about it. I quote him, Luke's admission that he used other human sources like Mark and carefully compiled his account does not invalidate divine inspiration that does not bypass or override a personality or a man's style or his vocabulary. MacArthur said all of Luke's research, all of his human effort was orchestrated by divine providence. B.B. B. Warfield, a great champion of biblical orthodoxy and authority, wrote this He said, The whole of Scripture, is a joint product of divine and human action, each penetrating the other. In other words, Warfield said, you can't say those verses there are Luke and then the three that follow are God. No. The whole penetrates the whole. The work of the man and the work of the Spirit of God are one mysterious thing, so that we can say when the man speaks, God speaks. And it's not just that Luke has uncanny accuracy about historical detail, which he absolutely does. He actually has infallible accuracy because it is nothing less than the work of the Lord that is behind his words. So I say to you, in final word for today at least, you can be certain. You do not need to be tossed on a sea of doubt forever about Christ. He is not a tentative conjecture or a wisp of imagination dreamt up by someone long ago. We need what Theophilus sought, sure knowledge of a divine Savior, able to change us, able to cure us and impact us at the core of our lives. We won't obtain that knowledge by religious theorizing or wishing The ironclad guarantee of such knowledge is painted in the blood of the historic cross of Jesus Christ, and it is energized by his rising from the dead. Do you know Christ for sure? Maybe you're still on the way in that direction. Let me offer you the text that will help you greatly. Because here is the doctor's historic prescription for you. The doctor who knew what was wrong with you. And by the Spirit of God told us of the cure. And the cure himself is the great physician, Jesus Christ. The one who alone has the cure, the certain cure for souls. Our Father... I ask that as we continue this quest of learning, this great gospel, we thank you for it. Thank you for this man in the distant past who you used as this wonderful instrument. We need to be sure, Father. We're tossed and turned. Nobody seems to be sure, and many say to us, you can't be sure. It's just your truth chosen from somebody else's truth. We do not believe that, our Father. Show us your truth and establish it in us. Thank you for the doctor who helped us to be sure. For your honor and glory, work this truth in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.